the quietness between prayers is really life-giving. I mean, we're living in a noisy world right now. And just to sit together in church and be quiet is life-giving. Pastor Allen, thanks for leading us through that, and thank you for voicing prayers from your heart and for us as a people. We are studying through the Psalms. If you're a guest today or this is your first time with us, we're in Psalm 65, and we, um, we want to... So something we love about the Psalms is that they are incredibly predictable and... and uh, stable and dependable like the Psalms there's a lot of dependability in the Psalms right they are consistently God-centered you read the Psalms you will find that they are consistently God-centered they are predictable in that way they're consistently faith-building they are consistently um, revealing my need like in fact the way that the Psalms present the human condition is that is often very raw and unpolished. So there is a predictability about the Psalms, which is why, why we love them. But as we said last Sunday, there's also an unpredictability about the Psalms. A surprising freshness that we keep finding as we keep reading the Psalms over and over again. There's a surprising uh, freshness that I keep rediscovering. So on one hand, I'm in the deep end of personal devotion with David in Psalm 63, and then I turn around and, and the next minute evil is swirling all around me in Psalm 64. And then when we come to Psalm 65, again, another turn. I did not see this coming. Something surprising to me about Psalm 65. And before I tell you what that is, let me just make this really, I think, important observation. The book of Psalms, in this way, reflects the very character and ways of God himself. Meaning, God is incredibly predictable and dependable and stable in his being and his character, his promises. But he's also, at the same time, equally unpredictable. Sometimes shocking us with what he does. Surprising us in ways that we never saw coming. Um, let me show you what got my attention in Psalm 65 that's surprising and refreshing. It's in verse 1. It's the very first line of the psalm. So many of your translations will read, praise is due to you. Verse 1, first line, praise is due to you, or you are worthy of praise, or something like that. Uh, and, and those are good translations. That's an accurate translation. It, it, it's certainly true, right? What drives the whole book of Psalms is that God is worthy of our praise. Uh, so we need to make that really clear. But you also probably, many of you probably have a little footnote. Do you see the footnote at the end of that first line that drops you down to the bottom of your page in the Bible? Another way to translate this line which is probably, I, I think it's the more compelling way. I'm following a couple of 
of scholars who think this is the better way to translate this line. Look at this. If you've got a footnote, it says, praise waits for you in silence or something like that. It might say, praise waits in silence. You see that? It might be the more accurate rendering of this first line to, to translate it, praise waits in silence. Or as, as, one, uh, as one Hebrew scholar translated it, to you, silence is praise. Meaning, this is, this, is the, this is what it means, if that's true. Silence in worship is a genuine form of praise. Simon and Garfunkel were not the first people to write a song about the sound of silence. Poets do it all the time. And what might be happening here is... David might be saying, I have been so amazed by who you are, God, that I stand in jaw-dropping silence before you. And we're going to get credit for that as an act of worship. Sensing God's greatness sometimes takes us beyond what the spoken word can express. You know this if you've been a believer for any length of time. That there are times when the most worshipful thing you can do is fall silent before his presence, his character, in total submission to his will. Like perfect submission, perfect delight, when all is at rest. There are times when waiting. This is something else we're learning as believers, right? There are times when waiting is better than acting. When silence is better than speaking. Think of the moment, think of the moment at Carnegie Hall just before the conductor raises his hands and all the chairs are filled in the symphony and all the instruments are tuned, and the whole house, I guess I should reverse this, the whole house is full of people, and the orchestra is ready, and the whole place falls utterly silent right before the conductor starts the deal. Think of that moment. There's nothing more appropriate in that moment than what? Than an expectant silence. It's an act of honor and praise and expectation. And sometimes the very best thing you can do in Christian worship, whether it's at church or whether it's at home or whether you're on a hike or you're at the beach, wherever that moment of worship is happening, sometimes the very best thing you can do in Christian worship is to fall silent in humility before God. In awe of Him. If you read the psalm in this way, if you take this reading, and again, it, I'm, I'm not, we're not pronouncing with certainty that that's the reading. I'm just telling you it makes a lot of sense. If you take this reading, then, then as, the stanz, as the psalm unfolds in three stanzas, it evokes a sense of silence in us that God is creator, 
provider and redeemer. I'm going to move redeemer to the end because I want to land there. So the natural order of the psalm is redeemer, creator, provider. But we're going to start with creation. So God, our creator, God, our provider, God, our redeemer, could, could really evoke a sense of, of quietness and amazement as we worship him. Let's think, number one, about God, our creator in verses five through eight. The emphasis in verses five through eight falls on, on God as the Lord of nature, all of nature and all of humanity. So verse five says, by awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness. Deeds, by awesome deeds or works, uh, what the psalmist has in mind is all of the creative works of God. And you'll hear this over and over again in the Psalms, <clears throat> that the psalmist is amazed that God creates and, and makes the world the way that he does. By awesome deeds you answer us with righteousness, O God of our salvation. The hope of all the ends of the earth and the farthest seas. He made the mountains, verse 6. He established the mountains, the one who by his strength created and established the mountains, being girded with might. He is girded with might and power so he can make a world that's full of huge mountains. And mountains, interestingly, right, because we live in the mountains, mountains evoke a sense of majesty and strength. And that's what the psalmist is tapping into. So he's saying, wow, you, you made these massive mountains. You make all these beautiful things. The one who by his strength created made the mountains, verse 6. God, is, God himself is girded with might. Uh, my daughter Karis texted me a couple weeks ago, and she said, call me ASAP. Well, no, no, she said, FaceTime me ASAP. FaceTime me ASAP, and so, like, it wasn't a 911, I need, you know, so you knew if it was a FaceTime, hopefully you weren't going to see something bad, you are going to see something good, so, so she FaceTimes me into this hike, and they're on their way up <clears throat> to, and they're not going to go all the way to the top of Mount Rainier, but they're with a group of friends, and they're hiking toward Mount Rainier, and they're going to go up to about 7,000 feet, so she FaceTimes me, I got to show you where we are at 7,000 feet, it's just amazing. And then, and it was a beautiful picture, and, and we said hello and all of that, and I met a couple of her friends in, in the middle of that moment, but then she told me later that here's what really was happening. She said one of her friends who was really kind of driving everybody to get up, up the mountain, because this was a serious hike from, you know, where they started at 5,000 feet or whatever it was, and by the time they got to 7,000, I mean, they're just dying. They're trying to make their way up and keep going. And one of her friends said, hey, come on, you can do it. Can't you feel the energy of the mountain pulling you up? And Karis said, no, I don't feel that at all. I feel like I'm dying right now. I don't feel any energy coming from the mountain. That's, that's exactly what he said, though. Can't you feel the energy of the mountain pulling you to the top? I think Karis knew what he meant. While it is tempting to think of the mountains as full of energy and life-giving, and this is what naturalism does. Naturalism taps into that. Humanism taps into that. And worshiping the creation itself taps into that. While it is tempting 
to think of the mountains in that moment while you're seeing this beauty and majesty as actually full of energy themselves and life-giving as if the earth could be your mother and as if this world would actually sustain you and feed you with energy. While it's tempting to believe that and think that, the psalmist knows better than that. He knows better than to think of the majesty of the mountains apart from God. He doesn't think of the mountains as having a majesty of their own. He does not think of the mountains as having a life-giving majesty of their own. No, no, no. What he's trying to do is make the, the point that someone filled these mountains with majesty. He's worthy of your worship. The one who's worthy of worship stands above the mountains. And he stills the roaring of the seas, verse 7, and the roaring of the waves. And he didn't just make the ocean. He makes the ocean work like it does. And then he can still the, he can still the waves. He can still the, the quaking of the earth. Did you feel that this morning? At 8.09, I was sitting in my study at 8.09 this morning, fine-tuning the message, and all of a sudden I feel this. I'm like, wait a minute, is Robert running across the second floor again? What, what is going on here? And then, and then it got stronger. And I walked down to Alan's office, I'm like, I think we're having a tremor. He's like, we are having a tremor. You know, we're Checking it out, it was a 5.1 in Sparta, North Carolina, and we felt it this morning. It's already on the website, the U.S. Geological Society, so you can confirm this. It's not just a sermon illustration. <laughs> the shaking of the earth should, should cause you to stop. And think about the amazing creative power of God by awesome deeds verse 5 the one who creates mountains verse 6 the one who stills the roaring of the oceans so that anywhere in the world that you go even people who dwell at the end of the earth are in awe at God's signs this should sometimes evoke silence in you. This, this should sometimes evoke a sense of nothing to say, just silence. The second point is that God is our provider. This also can evoke a sense of silence in us in a form of worship. Look at, look at the next stanza, verses 9 through 13. Um, so, so those who've studied the Psalms for, you know, who've given their lifetime to, stu to the study of the Psalms observe three distinct stanzas. I think I said this already. And this is a shift from creation to providence, to the, to the language of providence or the language of God providing and interacting with his creation. Look at verses 9 through 13. You visit the earth and water it. You greatly enrich it. The river of God is full of water. You provide their grain, and, and so you've, pre pre you've prepared it. You, uh, you manage the growth cycles of the year, he's saying. Um, if, you've been, if you come from a family who has farmed, or you're still somehow connected to a farming culture or family, verses 9 through 13 are incredibly meaningful to you. 
because you're so dependent on God providing the water and the growth. And, and so God waters its furrows abundantly, settling its ridges, softening it with showers, blessing its growth. Verse 11, you crown the year with your bounty. Your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. The pastures of the wilderness overflow. The hills gird themselves with... The meadows clothe themselves with flocks. This is beautiful personification, beautiful imagery. The meadows, as you look off across the meadows, you just see, you just see flocks everywhere. The valleys decked with grain. They all sing and they clap their hands. These amber waves of grain. God, our provider. He, so, so God, uh, the God of Scripture, is always present and active in His creation. That's what the doctrine of providence clearly asserts. He's present and He's active. We do not believe in deism. We do not believe that God just sort of wound up the clock of nature and now He's letting it tick down. We don't believe that. The Bible doesn't teach that. The Bible consistently teaches He is present and active in His creation, sustaining the seasons, sustaining the growth. We believe in the providence of God that it is daily, meticulous, life-giving, and sometimes he pours out his earthly blessings in abundance. Not all the time, but sometimes he pours out his earthly blessings in abundance. Look again at verses 11 and 13. You crown the year with your bounty. Verse 11, uh, it says your wagon tracks overflow with abundance. What that means uh, is that the wagon that's carrying the fruit, the wagon that's carrying the grain, the wagon that is, that's, that's hauling the produce, the wagon is overflowing. The, the ESV, the way it reads, it almost makes it sound like the, the wagon tracks themselves are somehow you know, doing something, but that, that's not what it means. What it means is the wagon that's rolling through these and making thick, this wagon's laden down with stuff, it's making thick tracks, and the fruit is falling off the wagon. Like, that's the picture. God does that. Sometimes it is so bountiful that God just, just blesses and you just don't, your wagon's not big enough, right? You, you like to say, my cup overflows, right? Exceedingly and abundantly beyond all that you could ask or think. Now, here's my question. When you experience undeserved material blessing, when you see God's material, I'm talking about material blessings, when you see God's material abundance poured out on you or someone else, do you delight in that? Do you delight in that? Or does it is, it, is it more like, you know, I deserve this. Finally, I caught a stinking break. What, what, do you, what would you say your response is? Does material blessing in your life evoke a sense of silence and awe and amazement? God, I don't deserve this. Or does material blessing just kind of feed that entitlement that's lurking in the background, waiting to be brought to life? I deserve this. I've been working hard all my life. I deserve this. I've been working. I, thankfully, I finally got a break. I think sometimes we're less Christian than we think when it comes to material blessing or spiritual blessing 
I mean, the older you get, the less you care about physical and material things, and the more you care about relational and spiritual things and things you can't touch, things you can't see, things that characterize deep, profound love and relationships, and you start letting go of things, right? What about God providing material, I mean, uh, what about God providing immaterial blessings? What about God providing richly relational healing and love and restoration and those kind, like, like when in his kindness he awakens your own child's heart to the gospel. When for the first time she sees the beauty of Christ and his saving work on the cross, Who's giving that blessing? Who provides that? And does it evoke a sense of amazement and silence in your heart? Is, does it evoke worship? Which is what brings us to our third point. So let me, let me transition by asking you this. Does the saving grace of God. Does the saving grace of God bring you to a place of kind of staggering silence? Does the saving grace of God, does the redeeming work of Christ, does the redeeming favor of God bring you to a place of just, wow, I don't know, I don't know what to say. He is not just, this psalm teaches us, he's not just the psalm, he's not the God of creation only. He's not just the God of creation and providence. He is also the God of redemption, of saving. God, our Redeemer. This is the best part. <laughs> this is the best part. This is for sure the best part, that, he, that, that his grace silences us. If you have been dabbling in shady finances, if you lost your temper this week and said hurtful things to those that you love, if your family's being pulled apart by a selfish sibling who should have grown up years ago, if you know the feeling of betrayal or abuse or divorce in your family, If the chronic people-pleasing that looks like niceness to everybody on the outside but really is just a deep longing for the approval of others and a fear of man. If the habitual use of pornography, alcohol abuse, or pills is the only way you can get to sleep at night, then listen for just a second. Listen for the grace of God that could move you to a place of amazing awe and silence. Look at this. Look at verse 3 one more time and just listen to verse 3 and listen for the grace and mercy of God. When iniquities prevail against me. And this is the first stanza. Now remember, uh, if we took it in the order of the psalm, we would say, all right, so praise is waiting for you in silence. And I just imagine that 
David is thinking silence is an amazing form of praise. I have that to offer you right now. And, and then the first thing he thinks about is God's grace. That God has rescued him from himself. He's rescued him from the sin that prevails against him. The sins of others that prevail against him, the sins of his own life that prevail against him. Verse 3, when iniquities prevail against me. I wanted to land here because I, I, I want... I want it to land on grace. I want the last thing you hear this morning to be this amazing grace that could silence you for just a few minutes. You know, modern people, those who have come of age intellectually, uh, who see religion as myth, a myth of the dark ages, modern people, moderns don't like to use the language of sin much anymore, hardly at all. Moderns and postmoderns have long since left the language of sin to describe the world's problems. And I don't want to get into why this morning. I just want to observe that the language of sin, iniquity, and transgression is no longer part of the, uh, it's no longer part of the conversation. It's no longer part of the cultural furniture. It used to be part of the cultural furniture. It's not anymore. Now the best you get is something like guilt. Yeah, I have guilt or selfishness, or trouble, or problems, but most people who are not Christian, who are having conversations out in the world today about the problems of life, are not using the language of iniquity and sin and transgression. Uh, it's certainly not in reference to God. If it is in reference to God, it's leftover baggage from a Christian culture. The Bible, on the other hand, the Bible, on the other hand, Scripture, on the other hand, consistently employs the grammar of sin with a whole vocabulary and syntax and, and system um, which is designed to communicate something, right? The Bible purposefully uses the grammar of sin. It uses words like iniquity and transgression and rebellion and disobedience and idolatry, all in light of who God is and how we treat one another all the time, over and over again. You can't read through, through three or four pages of the Bible. Uh, you can't read through a chapter of the Bible without some reference to God, sin, the brokenness of the world, and how we treat one another. The reason Scripture does this is because sin is very real. That's why. Sin is a very real thing. It's not, sin is not a made-up concept to sell the myth of religion. It's not just an immature stage in the late development of humanity. Look again at verse 3. When iniquities prevail against me. The word iniquity here uh, refers to a lack of integrity. It refers to a sense of ungodliness. It, it um, probably David has in mind his own iniquities as well as the iniquities of others because of the way he kind of, you know, verse three is a little bit confusing at first because he changes the pronouns. So 
If it's like he's talking about me and now he's talking about us, talking about me, now he's talking about us. David will sometimes do this because his view of sin is that it's not just affected him, it's affected us and the sin of us affects him. And so he will do this sometimes and he does it here and he says, when iniquities prevail against me, um, so we think he has in mind his own integrity and sin and the things he's done to wrong others and things he's done to betray others, big or small. Here's what I want to point out. This is a really interesting phrase because he personifies sin. Look at the language of it again. He's talking about it as if it's a person. When iniquities prevail against me, when they act on me, when they dominate me, when they wrestle me, when, they, when, when my sin, so the reason sin is so real, the reason Bible keeps talking about it over and over again, and the reason the Bible personifies sin, almost as if it's giving it a life of its own, is, is because sin has the power to dominate you like a person. Like that's purposeful imagery. When, when, when sin prevails against me, when it has its way with me, when it dominates me, when it wins the battle for my heart, think of the very first time this happens in the Bible. Back to Genesis chapter 4, verses 6 and 7, when God says to Cain, why are you angry? This is the imagery that's used. Why are you angry? And then he instructs him toward obedience and he says, be careful, why? Do you remember this? Because sin is crouching at the door. The, um, I think maybe the King James uses the language of crouching at the doors. Some, some translations use the language of crouching at the door, waiting. Like sin is described as a hitman who's kind of bent down around the corner waiting for you to come and then dominate you, prevail against you. The reason the Bible personifies sin over and over again, almost as if it's giving it a life of its own, is to teach us that sin is real and to convince us, listen, here's the point, to convince us that sin, cannot, that sin is real and we cannot rule over sin alone. Yes, Genesis 4, 7 says don't let it rule over you and you need to learn how to fight sin and repel sin and that's why we need each other to undermine uh, habituated sin. But the Bible, the Bible never says you can do this alone. God didn't promise Cain to do this by himself. And, and nowhere in the Bible will you find this call to fight sin alone all by yourself. You will have to fight your sin and help others fight their sin. So it's not, you can't ignore it, but you're never called to do it alone. And you can't do it for yourself in this sense. Look at the next line. When iniquities prevail against me, and they win. Look, when sin wins against you, David says, then you atone for my transgressions. I'm not encouraging you to sin this morning. 
But I do want you to know that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. And there's this constant tension in our preaching and teaching. And we need to be careful. And some people think we need to be so careful that we don't talk too much about grace because then it would encourage people to sin. And I think I understand the logic of that. But listen to this. When sin wrestles me down, when sin, when I don't see it coming, it's crouching at the door, and sin wins... When that happens, what does David say? I should just give up. Is that what he says? No. You, God, God atones for my sin. God atones for my transgressions. God covers my sin. This is the message of grace. When you begin to understand the grace of God, listen, when you begin to understand that God is willing to cover your sin for you, and that you cannot cover your own sin. That he sent his son to bear our judgment and make atonement for sins. And then, look at this. And this is, so, this, is, this is early adoption language in the Bible. This is early adoption. Not only does he atone for our sins, but what does it say? Uh, Blessed is the one you choose and bring near. That's the language of grace, by the way. Again, we have this tension in the Bible and some people resist the language of God choosing in salvation, but David says, you choose to bring us near. You choose to atone for our transgressions. You choose to show us grace. That is what grace is. Undeserved favor, undeserved merit that God chooses to shower on people. And it says this in verse four, blessed is the one you choose and bring near to dwell in your courts to be part of your house in your temple. That's, that's the language of adoption. That's the language of, of God doing something for me that I cannot do for myself. He wants to make me part of his family. And the way he makes, we read about this more fully in the New Testament, the way he makes me part of his family is by bringing me into a relationship with his son. And so if by faith I discover that Jesus Christ will cover for me I can be part of God's family. If by faith I will yield myself to Jesus, if by faith I will surrender myself to him, if by, uh, by hope and trust and just throwing myself on his mercy, if I will let Jesus rescue me from my sin, I can be brought into God's family. I can experience grace. I can experience grace, and I don't just experience grace the day I'm converted. I don't just experience grace the day that I'm saved. Grace becomes the new economy out of which I live my whole life. And if I sin again, and I will, when I sin again, and I will, God will cover my transgressions. He has covered them in Christ. And then we begin to learn how to revel in His grace without ever presuming on it. That should bring you to a place of silence. That, that should evoke, I, I don't know what to say. I don't have anything to say. I am just a recipient in silence. So we're going to take a moment.
and let this fall into a quiet response. And we're going to be, I want to ask you to just silence yourself before the Lord. And especially, no, don't just, just we don't want to just be quiet. I want, to ask you to, I want to ask you to think about being silent in light of His grace. Silence that has been evoked by grace. And then we're going to sing a song in just a few minutes about waiting before Him. And so in just a few minutes, we'll, we'll sing. But let's take a moment and let the grace of God just quiet us before Him.